Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. One of the advantages of committing to preach through an entire book of the Bible is that it forces you to deal with texts that if you were just selecting topics to preach on, you might be inclined to overlook or deselect, you know. When you say, I'm going to preach through First and Second Peter, and you're going to do it properly, you're going to have to deal with kind of every text in that book. And that means you come into sections that maybe deal with unpleasant topics. And I have to confess to you all that I feel like I've kind of gotten stuck in Second Peter chapter 2, and I don't want to be here. I'm kind of bogged down in it. I'm hoping that the Lord is in that and that it's needful, that we need to hear it. But preaching on the world is full of false prophets and, you know, you're supposed to be looking out for them. Peter taught this. The Lord taught this. It's not really a pleasant topic as you start looking out into the world and think about all the ramifications of this teaching. Consider the extent to which false prophets exist in our world. It has a lot of unpleasant ramifications as you begin to play that out and apply that to the world you see around you. So being here for a few sermons, it kind of got me a little bit depressed. You know, it's a little bit like, this is just an unpleasant topic. I don't want to uh, deal with it too much. And maybe this is going to be the last sermon that I'm going to have on this topic. But I wanted to confess that to you today and let you know that you know, what your preacher feels like he has to stand up and tell you sometimes is not really what he wants to get up and talk about, just in terms of sheer preference. If I'm committed to getting through this book, I've got to deal with these things and deal with them as the Lord has put it on my heart, even though at times I might feel like, well, I need to say that, but I don't really feel much like saying it. So uh, I'm just confessing that to you here. I think we're going to get beyond it today, but there's a little bit of unpleasantness to deal with in this chapter. And When you start thinking about the fruits of false prophets in the world, this is sort of what happens when you have the church unmoored, when the church is not connected to the truth, right? The Word of God is our mooring for the church. It connects the church to the dock in a safe harbor, so to speak. It keeps us in one position. And much like docking a ship like that and mooring it to the dock, your life and the church is in many ways like that boat. And it's attached to the land on one side and it's got three sides to the water, does it not? And our lives are kind of that way. We have our church life. We're attached to the Word of God. If we're doing it properly, we're locked down on what the truth is. But each of us feel as though the waters encroach on all the other sides, right? I mean, you, I, I know I come to church on Sunday. I feel as though the church is a refuge. I feel like I'm looking at the land side of the moorings here. And I'm like, okay, this is the part that's not moving. This is safe. And this is the truth. But as I look out on the other side of the boat into the waters of this world, it, it looks a little different. When you have false prophets that creep into the church and creep into the Christian faith and promote false ideas, it's as though the church has been unmoored from the truth. Just like a boat, you just tie it loose and where's it going to go? It's going to go wherever the currents and winds blow it. This nautical metaphor, by the way, is used in a lot of places in the Bible. 
Paul talks about being blown around by every wind of doctrine. And I'm sure he had thoughts of times when he was in difficult spots at sea where sometimes if a storm gets so strong, they decide this storm is literally going to blow the boat to pieces between the water pushing it one way and winds pushing it another way. It's going to rip the masts off the boat. And it's just going to be a disaster. So there's a point in a storm, in a sailing vessel, where you just say, we're going to batten down the hatches, we're going to shut everything down, bring the sails down, and we're just going to try to float. We're just going to be like a cork on top of the water. We're not going to try to fight against the current. We're going to try to determine what direction we're going to go. Hopefully we're in deep enough water, and we're just going to ride it out. We're just going to bob along, and wherever the winds and currents blow us, that's where we go. But we see that as a, as a strategy, a maritime strategy for not destroying the boat in a situation where you're in a storm. And if we're not moored to the dock as a church and as a people, we can find ourselves in the storms of this world and the doctrines, every wind of doctrine of the world that blows you all over the place, and you could end up way off the mark from where you originally started. I submit to you that as you look across Christianity today, the evidence is irrefutable. There are churches that believe wildly different things than we do. Wildly different things. Right? You see stories about people who throw a message in a bottle. Right? Well, I went to Hawaii and I put a message in a bottle and I threw it out in the ocean and it got carried off. And you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, somebody finds that and it's in you know, South America somewhere. It's been bobbing around. It's way off the mark from where it was when it was originally put in the water. And that's because the winds and the currents, well, that bottle not having any mooring, it's not attached to any location. It's just going wherever the winds and the currents are going to blow it. And it ends up way off the mark from where it started. That's the state of visible Christianity today. Many, many bottles out there, none of which were moored to the dock. They've drifted all over the place and they believe wildly different things because they're not moored to the truth. And part of why they're not moored is because false prophets have come in and they have sold them a whole host of ideas. They've told them this is the dock and this is where you ought to tie down, so to speak, but there's nothing substantial there to hold them in that place. And so the church just becomes unmoored and it drifts around on an ocean of philosophical ideas and falsehoods that ultimately lands them on a beach far off the mark from the faith once delivered to the saints. This is kind of the fruit, if you will, of having false prophets in the church and teaching falsehood. And we're going to return now to this idea of the false prophets. I think we're picking up in about verse 10 here. We were talking about Lot And we talked about Noah a little bit. And they found themselves in a wicked place. And uh, they were righteous men. Uh, We mentioned in Lot's case, it's kind of hard to see that from external evidence. But the Bible affirms it nevertheless. And he had a battle of conscience even in the world he was in thinking about these people are not doing right. The people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, they're really not living as they ought. And that's the context he found himself in. Verse 9, we ended last time with, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. We talked a little bit about how God is a faithful judge of the wicked. He is going to bring these things ultimately into judgment. He's going to deliver the righteous who are righteous on the basis of what Christ did 
and He's going to punish the wicked, those outside the intercession of Christ. And we know that to be the case. But now we're picking up in verse 10. But chiefly them, it's talking about the punished, the judgment of those to be punished, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh of the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now this is, these are some of the characteristics of the people here. And this is referring back to what was previously mentioned about Sodom and Gomorrah. This is kind of the example that he's working through. And he talks about them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. I don't think that needs explanation to reasonable adult people. And if that language is not plain enough to you, perhaps you're not old enough to understand exactly what that means. But let's just put it this way. It's bad. And this is what these people were involved with. It's speaking of the Sodomites, those people who were living in that wicked town and practicing this sort of evil. And it says they despise government. I want to look at that notion for a moment because it might lead us to some false conclusions. Think about this. Sodom and Gomorrah were these rampantly wicked cities. They were promoting this. Their government was not against wickedness, right? Their government was like, it's wide open here. We're open for business. And by the way, these wicked practices are really good for business, right? We're going to let all this stuff just run wild. By the way, we can tax it. We can make money off of it. And uh, people like to do wicked things, and it's going to bring them in, you know? There's always a way to invoke carnality to improve attendance. You ever thought about that? Sometimes pastors think about, well, you know, how would I improve attendance at the church? And I understand that notion. You want people to come in and hear the truth and all those things. But attendance could be easily improved. We could tap a keg in the basement and put up a free beer sign every Sunday, and we could radically improve the attendance in this church. Now, I could give you 15 other carnal examples of things we could do. Obviously, they're totally ridiculous, right? But you'd be crazy to think they wouldn't improve attendance at this church. They would. The key is, how do you improve attendance when you're preaching the truth? And that's really the question we're trying to, uh, to work on here. These people, it says they despise government. And what I want to be clear on here, these people did not despise the government of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's something else intended here by government in this text. You see, right? Yeah. That is a very important point. They weren't going to Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, well, this government's really coming down on me and uh, we hate the government here. Now, those people were probably all about the government of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, they're all for all the stuff we want to do. They promote it. They're bringing more people in. They love that form of government. This is talking about God's governance, governance in the truth. That's talking about God's sovereign rulership over things, living as you ought. That's what they despise. They despise being governed in the proper way. And that's why they've built this society that's totally opposed to God's rule and promotes everything that's in contradiction to that. It says, presumptuous are they, self-willed. Well, the government of Sodom and Gomorrah was all about letting you explore your self-will, you know. Come on in here. This is, you know, it's, it's just going on here. It's wide open. You can do whatever you want. Anything goes, right? 
some places like that in the United States today. Probably more than we would care to admit, but it's certainly true. Presumptuous are they self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. That word dignities there is really, the concept is glorious things. It's talking about, for example, speaking evil of the dignities or the glorified ones who would be representing the truth in this world. They have no problem telling you, well, you're just one of those backward Christian people. You're some kind of religious zealot who is trying to come down and rain on everybody's parade, tell us that we can't do this and can't do that, and we're over here wanting to live our best life now, do whatever we want. We despise the governance of something like the kingdom of God, the Lord's New Testament church that would come in and say, you should not be living that way. This is sin. It's wrong. God hates it. They despise that, and they got no qualms about speaking evil against it. Now, this is a principle that is very much in play today. I feel as though a lot of my life, and maybe this is naive of me, but I'll share it with you. I feel like as though a lot of my life I felt kind of like you could be a backseat Christian. You know, like the world's going on, but I have my beliefs and we're kind of live and let live. And they're going to do their thing. And I'm going to do my thing. And, and you know, <laughs> ne'er the twain shall meet. Right. We'll, we'll just kind of live and let live. And that's how it's going to be. And in some respects, maybe that's true, but that day, it seems, has come to an end. If it ever existed at all, if I wasn't just kidding myself to think that that's how it was for a season, I think that day has ended. And we are living in a time where our government, our society is tilting more towards the ideas of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's wide open, moral depravity. We're going to support all of those sorts of things. And on top of that now, we're going to speak evil of dignities or of glory. We're going to say, not only are we for us having the freedoms to do whatever we want to do, we're actually now going to be openly hostile to the church, to the kingdom of God. I think that's where we find ourselves. And you're going to find it difficult to live as a Christian and kind of hunker down behind the seats and maybe try to not catch too much flack over what you believe. So maybe this is part of the unpleasantness of this. I think we have to realize this is a wicked world we're living in, and we've got people who speak evil of what we do. It seemed years ago maybe more as if people were like, oh, those, those Christian people, I'm not paying much attention to what they do. Now it's more of those Christian people, I actively hate what they do. And I'm going to take actions to try to undermine their efforts. That's kind of more of the world we're in now. That's an unpleasant thought, but it's one we should all consider. Verse 11, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. I mean, angels look at this and say, I think all of us have an inclination to want to see evil in the world. Just be like, ah, they shouldn't do that, shouldn't do that. And, and it's right to know that the Word of God says those things are wrong. It's right to point them out as wrong. It's right to know that they are wrong. It's right to avoid living in that way. But there's some point at which you cross over into the realm of judgmentalism and you take it a step too far. And what's being pointed out here is there's a point in, the, I'm sure the angels recognize, yeah, this is bad. This is wrong and it's bad. But they bring not a railing accusation against them before the Lord. Now, you're not informing God. 
The angels have enough sense to know that. We're not telling God anything He doesn't know. These people down here are doing horribly wicked things. There's no point in going to God and saying, Lord, I need to tell you about what I just saw going on down there in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's kind of ridiculous when you really think about it. In fact, that notion actually makes many of our prayers somewhat ridiculous. When you think about who you're praying to, sometimes our prayers take the form of, I need to bring God up to speed on this. Well, He's God. He's more up to speed on it than you are, right? So oftentimes the notion of prayer and intercession on these things is more an act of, it is an act of worship primarily and submission to God more so than the character it takes on, which seems as though we're trying to bring God up to speed about what's going on in things. And the angels look at this and they're like, I don't have to bring a railing accusation telling God what's going on down here. God already knows. And by the way, As we said last Sunday, God is the sovereign judge of this world. He knows, and He's going to take care of it. He's either going to save some of these people by the work of Christ, or He's going to punish them eternally for it. So they don't see a need to bring railing accusation. I think the cautionary word there is we don't have to bring a railing accusation before God on this. Maybe what we should do is fear God embrace the truths that we already know about God, which is that He knows all. He knows everything. He's righteous and just, and He's going to take care of this. And we need to be careful about railing accusations, because there's a bit of a warning here. But these, as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. That's a hard shall verse. They shall utterly perish in their own corruption. God is going to deal with this, and He's going to deal with it justly. And there's no need for us to add a railing accusation before God to inform Him of this. As the righteous, all-knowing judge, He's already up to speed on it, and He's totally diligent in His duties in that respect. Verse 13, "...and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes." sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. That's the uncomfortable element here is that these people get into the church. This is not a us versus them. Well, that happened over there at that whatchamacallit church down the road. This is talking to God's people here. So some of those churches that have departed, a lot of them, honestly, if you trace the heritage far enough back, if you can actually have the documentation to do it, you'll find many of those churches were old Baptist churches a long time ago. And at some point there was a departing that came as a result of somebody sitting down with them in a friendly capacity and slowly convincing them over time of things that are not true. Slowly cutting the ties to the dock, unmooring the church one rope at a time. Now, a big ship usually has some humongous ropes that tie it to the the shore, and there might be two or three of them or whatever, these giant ropes that tie them on the shore. But the church, in many respects, is sort of attached to its moorings. There are some bigger ropes in there that are incredibly important, but it's almost in some ways like it's tied to the bank with paracord. And there's thousands and thousands of lines there that are holding it to its mooring in the Word of God. And so... With many small lines, it's easy for people over time to come and cut a line or two 
and nobody takes much notice. Maybe the church doesn't move as a result of it. And they cut a couple more and a couple more. And over time you have this effect to where eventually the ship is rocking away from the dock and it's held on more tenuously by a few of those ropes. And that's usually how it comes to pass. I suspect that we have enough sense that if someone walked in the back door and said, I want to come in here and I'm fixing to preach a bunch of stuff that's totally contrary to everything you've ever heard out of the Word of God, and I want you to give me an opportunity to speak to you for an hour, and I'm not an ordained elder, I'm just some stranger that's walked in like that, we'd probably all be like, yeah, I don't see that happening. (laughs) Right? I mean, a frontal assault of that magnitude and something that's that evident, we'd probably all recognize it. Yeah, this is not a good thing. We're not going to do that. Right? But the devil is so much more subtle in how he penetrates matters, how he slowly gets in. And oftentimes it's simple things like seemingly insignificant things. I'll give you an example that's very prevalent of one of those paracord lines that ties the church to the truth. Do we really need to have wine in the communion service? In my ordination, I had Elder Freddie Bowen ask, there was one question Freddie Bowen asked me. He said, would you substitute grape juice for wine in the communion service? I said, no, I would not. And he smiled and sat down because he liked that answer because that's the right answer. Some of you may not have ever even thought about this. The argument goes something like this. Well, we've got former alcoholics in our church and they are so tempted and enticed by the consumption of alcohol that if they were to take a one-ounce sip of wine in the communion service, it might send them on an alcoholic bender that would destroy their life and undo all of the progress that they have made in extracting themselves from the demon alcohol. That's the argument. Very prevalent. It undergirds why so many churches have decided we're not going to use wine in the communion service. It seems pretty innocuous, right? And that's one little paracord. It's, 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 I mean, I'll say it's a relatively small issue in light of, you know, who did Christ die for? Was there an everlasting covenant in place? Is the blood of Christ effectual in achieving its end? I mean, there, there's some huge doctrinal pillars there, big ropes. But there's a lot of smaller things that people might be willing to compromise on and say, well, I know we're supposed to use wine, and that's clearly what they did in the Bible, but I'm going to cut that paracord because it seems pragmatic to me. It seems to make sense that we wouldn't want to do someone harm and send them down a path, right? Well, there's a lot of examples of that sort, relatively subtle things. And I think we at times are kind of accused of being stick in the mud about, you know, you're so particular about all these things. Well, we think they're important. And I think to the extent that you begin to regard them as unimportant, it becomes easier to cut more and more paracord lines. And maybe it's 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. These churches are in very different places and they believe very different things. So we've got to stay connected to the moorings. And it starts, as it does here, it started in many of these examples with someone coming in and seeming to have good intent and being friendly and just sitting down, right down and having dinner with them. 
And these ideas get sold in that way. It says in verse 14, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. Bad folks coming in. A covetous practice, there's always some kind of money deal mixed into these things, it seems. Which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Money's always mixed up in this deal. I've said this many times. I have a tendency to think it might be misunderstood, but I'm going to say it again. There ain't no money in preaching grace. You're not going to build a megachurch, drive a Bugatti, build a mansion from the revenues you get preaching that God did it all. Now, if you preach a religion that says, I've got the keys to the kingdom. And what I mean by that is that essentially no one's getting to heaven unless they come through my religious system. Well, all of a sudden, if you can get people to believe that, and by the way, people are incredibly naive and they believe all kinds of crazy religious ideas. If you can get them to believe that, really believe it, the idea of giving you thousands and thousands of dollars in light of the opposite, which might be spending eternity in hell, doesn't seem all that unreasonable. Well, would I rather have 10 grand in my bank account or spend eternity in hell? Maybe I ought to support this guy. He seems to have the keys to the kingdom, and he's got the plan that's going to get me into heaven. There's a lot of money in that. Religious nonsense is nothing if not profitable. It's very profitable, very convenient, and everybody's got a carnal mind that is inclined to want to embrace those sorts of things because on some level they're meritorious. And man's foolish carnal mind wants to think there's something I can do to set things right before God. But Christianity teaches there's something Christ did to set things right before God. And the faith once delivered to the saints imparts that truth to you and allows you to live in the comfort of it and be inspired by the reality of it. That's the difference. But there's always money involved. There's always some money. The wages of unrighteousness. People love that. It says that uh, Balaam was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Now listen to this description of these people. Doesn't sound good. These are wells without water. What good is a well without water? You know what that's called? A well without water? It's called a hole. Thank you. That's a hole. About all you're going to do is fall in it, break an ankle, those sorts of things. It's pretty well worthless. A well without water. These men are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. Well, I'll let you interpret that to whatever extent you want to, but I'll just put it to you like this. It's very bad. It's a bad judgment coming for these people. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. There's something alluring about this. It's related to the carnal mind that we all still possess, even as regenerate people. We have to recognize that sinful notions and foolishness still appeal to us on some level. 
It's important that you recognize that. You got to fight that. You got to put that off and put on the new man. That's kind of what the Christian walk is all about. But these men are speaking great swelling words of vanity. They allure you through lusts of the flesh. Well, I gave this example of tap a keg in the basement and put up a free beer sign on Sunday. And it's silly. We're not going to do that. Not going to come up in conference. That's not an idea that I have that I'm bringing to the church. Not some innovation. It's a silly example, but it makes sense because it appeals to the carnal minds of men. You could do any number of things down there. You could set up big screen TVs and have free ball games and snacks down there. Any number of ideas you could have. And they allure through the lusts of the flesh, right? They incline people to want to get involved because if you turn church into a carnival, you can attract carnal men to attend the church, right? We put in a roller coaster here. We're going to take away some of the business that's going on at Magic Springs. It appeals to the flesh of men, right? These kind of natural inclinations we have. But this is a spiritual kingdom. And we can't use those sorts of tools as something to lure them in. But false prophets, that's exactly what they do. And if you go through and look at the practices of many who are brokering in this realm, you're going to find all sorts of carnal things sprinkled throughout that are inclined to appeal to lots of people. People who are thinking about things carnally and not spiritually. Now, some of this is based on the doctrine they possess, which is that we're going to get carnal people to show up and our ministry work is going to regenerate them and get them eternally saved. Now, we regard that as a foolish notion because none of the natural man heareth not the things of the Spirit of God. He can't receive them, right? We, we understand that. God's got to do a work in the heart. He had to change Lydia's heart that she attended under the things spoken of Paul, right? That had to happen beforehand. Otherwise, Paul's words would have made no sense to her. It wouldn't have had any effect on it. So there's, there's no benefit if you understand how God saves sinners. There's no benefit in trying to lure them in with carnal things. And then, you know what that's called in advertising? It's called a bait and switch, right? You tell them, show up on this basis. And then when you get here, oh yeah, that's not really the deal. It's really this over here, right? Bait and switch. We'll bring you in with a bait. Then when we get you here, we'll switch it over to what we really intended. It's generally, in terms of a business practice, in some respects, it's illegal. And at a minimum, it's regarded as unethical, right? Why then should proper religion be brokering in this type of domain. I mean, honestly, if that's the deal, I I submit to you, if the deal is we need to bring carnal men in and through our talking to them and ministering to them, they're going to get regenerated and end up in glory where they would have ended up in hell. I'm telling you this right now. We should tap a keg in the basement and put up the free beer sign. If that's the arrangement, it makes perfect since you got to get the carnal guys in here if we're going to do our little ministry work on them and eventually get them regenerated so it makes perfect sense to do that but when you understand that salvation is the result of an everlasting covenant that is ordered in all things and sure and the only ones who could ever hear and profit from the word of god and believe it and receive it and accept it as true and have the faith whereby the gospel reveals the righteousness of christ to them when you understand that's the arrangement 
then you realize it would be totally foolish to try to appeal to the carnal mind in order to get people eternally saved. It's an impossibility. So what I'm saying is it sort of makes sense in their warped theology to do it that way. But their theology is warped. And it was warped by men who crept in and started modifying the doctrine, cutting some of those moorings, changing things so that now they're not moored to the truth anymore. And once you've cut the big rope, once you've cut the big rope of how God saves sinners, you can justify all kinds of crazy behaviors in the church. And you see it all over the place. Let's keep going. So the wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness. Those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. This is all sold as the idea of this is going to set you free. This is how we're going to have liberty. When you have more liberty in the church, it's going to be freeing. We're going to set you free from the bondage of old-time religion that has held you down for so many years with all these ancient ideas that really aren't any good, and we're going to have a new way here. But ultimately, they're the ones that are putting you into bondage. They're selling it to you as liberty. This is the new great thing that's going to take the church into the 22nd century when we make all these innovations and improvements but they're actually putting you in bondage. Now, that's all talking about how the church gets unmoored from the truth. How people come in with new ideas and seduce the church and convince it to cut ties with the truth. And over time, that results in drifting away and ending up in a place that's far away from where you started. Having reflected on those unpleasant things, I want to look at Psalm 119. And this is what I would regard as the psalmist teaching us about the child of God's relationship to his proper mooring. And to that extent, by extension, the church's relationship to its mooring, to the truth. How do we regard the truth? I think it's easy to affirm the idea that the church, broadly speaking, has radically downgraded the importance of the Word of God. Many churches a great many churches do not affirm that it is the inspired, inerrant, and preserved Word of God that we can trust and rely on. That's cutting a bunch of those lines to the shore when you make that statement. What are you moored down by at that point? Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I submit that the moment you disconnect yourself from the Word of God... You're walking in darkness without a lamp. That means that when someone comes in and presents themselves as an angel of light, they're going to seem like they've got some ideas about what direction we should go, right? They're holding a light of a different sort. It seems to provide some illumination on some things, and yet he's going to lead you in a direction that is totally contrary to the light you would receive from the Word of God. It's of central importance it's more important than we recognize, and it's how we stay moored to the dock. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according to thy word. You know, the Bible uses the word quicken at times to mean pass from death unto life. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, right? It literally in that sense means brought to life. But quicken 
in many places, particularly in the Psalms, means wake up, right? You're lying there inert. You're just passive. You ever heard somebody say to you, wake up? That's kind of what it means. Look alive. That's what they used to say when I was on a baseball team, you know, and they're out there and it's hot, middle of August, and you're tired. It's like the eighth inning or whatever, and you're all dragging and stuff. And the coach over there would say, look alive, right? He's saying, quicken yourselves. Wake up. You're too passive. It doesn't mean he didn't think I was dead out there. I just didn't look too good, right? Wake up. That's what it means here. And the Word of God is able to do this. I'm afflicted, quicken me, O Lord, according to Thy Word. The Word has a quickening effect on God's people. It calls to action the life that is in you that might otherwise be passive. Accept, I beseech you, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me Thy judgment. My soul is continually in my hand. Yet do I not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. Well, it sounds like the psalmist is in a situation where the world's encroaching on him and setting up snares for him and making it difficult for him. But he's committing to not err from the Lord's precepts nevertheless. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. It was important to him, right? I have inclined my heart to perform thy statues even unto the end. I would encourage you all to read Psalm 119. I think it's the longest psalm. Do that this week. That'll be your homework assignment. And there's a lot in there about the relationship between a Christian disciple and the Bible, the Word of God, and and what's it useful for and how should you regard it. I think it's modeled for us, and the word quicken is used over and over again in this text. And you will find that some of it kind of takes the form of a prayer, a child of God sort of praying to God to quicken me, right? It can't be regeneration, right? You see what I'm saying? Now, someone who's praying to God sincerely with this sort of heart and these sort of sentiments is already alive in Christ. They may need a refreshing of that life or a renewal or an inspiration to express that spiritual life that's within them. So read, read the rest of that, and I'll leave that alone for now. All of this, however, as we return to our nautical metaphor, and thinking about our moorings can be summed up in something I find in Hebrews chapter 6, in verse 17. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show to the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, that statement alone has huge ramifications on the value and the truth of the Word of God. If this is the Word of God, it is not a lie. God's not lying to you, and so we ought to accept it as truth. By two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What that is saying is our moorings are found in the truth of the Word of God and in what Christ has done. It describes the hope we have in that truth as an anchor, another nautical reference here. Now, I've been in situations before where 
I'm in a kayak or a canoe or something like that, maybe I'm in a lot of current, and I put down an anchor, and it doesn't really hold. The current's too strong, I start dragging along, you know. I need a bigger anchor, I guess. And I guess we could take a nautical metaphor and say, well, you know, anchors don't always hold. Maybe they didn't have anything to latch on to. You know, there weren't any rocks down there they could hook on to. The current was too strong, the winds were too strong, and it just, you just drug the anchor along the bottom. But the church is moored to the truth. It's like an anchor, and that anchor is the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's an unmovable rock. You follow that? Don't think of this as an anchor like the kind you've got in your fishing boat. And if the river's up, it's, gonna, it's not going to do its job. Our anchor is in the truths of the Word of God. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. He's an unmovable anchor. And to the extent that we press into the truths of the Word of God, we can keep the church and ourselves moored to the dock, close to the truth. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.